Blessed is everyone who fears the Lord, who walks in his ways. You shall eat the fruit of the labor of your hands. You shall be blessed, and it shall be well with you. Your wife will be like a fruitful vine within your house. Your children will be like olive shoots around your table. Behold, thus says, thus shall the man be blessed who fears the Lord. The Lord bless you from Zion. May you see the prosperity of Jerusalem all the days of your life. May you see your children's children. Peace be on Israel. That is Psalm 128, which along with Psalms 129 and 130 are the Psalms appointed for today, Wednesday, June the 29th, 2022. You're listening to Faith Seeking Understanding, and I'm your host, John Green. Thanks for being along today. I appreciate it very much. We're continuing our look at the uh, the prophecies of Balaam and the story of Balaam and Balak uh, in Numbers 22, uh, verse 41 through chapter 23, verse 12, also over in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 21, verses 33 to 46, and in the book of uh, well, Paul's letter to Romans, chapter 7, verses 13 to 25. So remember yesterday, what we had seen was, was Balaam was being prevented from going to prophesy to Balak. The Lord wanted to make sure that, that he knew that he better not say anything that he wasn't told to say. And so in the morning, Balak took Balaam and brought him out to Bamoth Baal. And from there, he saw a fraction of the people. And remember, part of the issue for Balak, the king of Moab, was is that he could see this enormous crowd of Israelites camped there in the wilderness. And his fear was they would come up against him. And so he, he wants Balaam to come and curse them, curse the Israelites, in spite of the fact that they're actually posing no threat to him at all. They're just there. <laughs> Balaam said then to Balak, Balaam the prophet said to Balak the king, build for me here seven altars and prepare for me here seven bulls and seven rams. Balak did as Balaam had said, and Balak and Balaam offered on each altar a bull and a ram. And Balaam said to Balak, now stand beside your burnt offering and I will go. Perhaps the Lord will come to meet me and whatever he shows me, I will tell you. In other words, I I don't have anything to say just yet. We've done this thing. We, we've, we've made these sacrifices to the Lord, and now I'm going to go apart from you, and I'm going to wait, and I'm going to listen for the Lord. And he went to a bare height, so he could see everything now. He's gone up higher, and, he could, and God met Balaam. And Balaam said to him, I've arranged the seven altars, and I've offered on each altar a bull and a ram. And the Lord put a word in Balaam's mouth and said, Return to Balak, and thus you shall speak. It's interesting because there's so much repetition in these kinds of uh, scenarios in Scripture, particularly in the Torah. You'll see that sort of this repetitious thing, like when um, Isaac, got, well, when um, his servant goes to find a wife for Isaac. You know, he tells the story about 50 times, and we get to see read it again and again. Here, though, well, all we're told is God said something to Balaam and then said, Now go, and thus you shall speak. And what is that? Thus you shall speak is the word that he put in Balaam's mouth. And that's what he said he was able to do. And remember the parallel there between Balaam and Moses. Because Moses said, hey, I can't. I'm not good at speaking. And, And God said, I'm the one who made your mouth. I'll put my words in your mouth. And here, that's exactly what he does. And he returned to him, and behold, he and all the princes of Moab, he, Balak, the king, and all the princes of Moab were standing beside his burnt offering. And Balaam took up his discourse and said what the Lord had told him to say, parentheses. So from Aram, Aram, Balak has brought me. Aram is where he was. Um, The king of Moab from the eastern mountains. Come, curse Jacob for me and come denounce Israel. He's repeating why he's there. 
How can I curse whom God has not cursed? How can I denounce whom the Lord has not denounced? For from the top of the crags I see him. From the hills I behold him. Behold, a people dwelling alone and not counting itself among the nations. That, I've told you this before, um, but in ancient hieroglyphs, that, I haven't told you this specifically, in ancient hieroglyphs, it's hard to find anything that has to do with the Hebrews, anything that has to do with the Israelites. Hebrews means river crossers, by the way. So the, the Hebrews and the Israelites, same people, it's very difficult to find in very ancient hieroglyphs anything that has to do with these people. Bonus points, if you guessed already, why it's difficult to find those people. And it's because hieroglyphs were set up so that the hieroglyph would, would be set up to refer to a people by the land. Some characteristic of the land would be the hieroglyph that identified the people. There wasn't really a word for a group of people who didn't have their own land. So it's very difficult to find these people, and that's exactly what Balaam Balaam says here, a people dwelling alone and not counting itself among the nations. So they're not part of any of these nations, but they're not in the table of nations either because their land is still waiting for them to come and conquer it. There are other nations in that land now, and it's their job to go conquer those nations, and it will become at that point a land, but right now it's many lands because it belongs to many people. That's what the the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Canaanites, the Hivites, the Jebusites, all those people had their own land, and so they had their little kingdoms, and what's happening now is God's consolidating all that into the land for these people so they don't count themselves among the nations. They're separate from everybody else. Who can count the dust of Jacob or number the fourth part of Israel? In other words, they're as countless as the stars in the sky and the sand on the seashore. Not quite that yet, but what he's saying is is that that this is a, a very numerous people. God has obviously blessed them. He said, let me die the death of the upright and let my end be like his. Well, that's not exactly what, <laughs> what Balak wanted him to do, because what he's saying is, let my end be like his. In other words, he says, I want to die the way those people die, blessed by the Lord, because that's, the, that's what's going to happen to these people, is God's going to further bless them. And Balak said to Balaam, what have you done to me? I took you to curse my enemies, and behold, you've done nothing but bless them. Well, what have the Israelites done to be their enemies? They're not in his borders. They're on the edge, and they're, they're wandering through the desert, in a sense, because God leads them the whole way. So they're not wandering aimlessly. They're going exactly where God tells them to go. And here they've done exactly the same thing God had them do at the Red Sea. Because they were going out into the wilderness, and then God said, now here's what I want you to do, Moses. I want you to bring your people back. I want you to double around, come back, so that Pharaoh can see you and then go to the Red Sea. Well, that was not the only option that he had, but God did it for a reason. And here God puts them here for a reason as well. And so Balaam answered Balak, must I not take care to speak what the Lord puts in my mouth? And the answer is that Balak doesn't know the half of he must be careful to speak that because he's already had an encounter with an angel on the way there, and the angel was going to kill him. And so he knows that he better be careful because his life will be very short if he's not very careful to say exactly what God tells him to say. 
in the in the gospel lesson today, remember the setting. We've come into Jesus has come into town on Palm Sundays, had the acclaim of the people, and and he's going in and out from Bethany and the Mount of Olives into the town, into the city every day. He goes to the temple and he teaches there. It's a very provocative thing to do because he knows what's going on, and and, and he gets even more provocative today. Here another parable. Because remember he told the parable um, earlier that they knew was about them and they felt the threat because he had asked them yesterday, remember, they asked him, by what authority do you do this? And Jesus said, I'll tell you, if you answer me a question, whose authority did John the Baptist come from? Was it from heaven or from man? And so they were, they were backed into a corner because they couldn't say it was from heaven because he would respond and say, well, then why didn't you heed his warning? And if we say it's from man, then, well, we fear the people, so we best not say that. So they didn't say anything. So Jesus then tells the parable of a man goes and, and tells his two sons what to do. And the first one says, okay, and then doesn't do it. And the second one says, no, I'm not going to do that. But then later goes and does it. And so then he says, so who did the will of his father? And, and they all get the answer right. Well, the second guy, because he actually did what he was told to do. He gave more than lip service to it. And so now he says, here, another parable. You got that one right. You understood the truth, <laughs> but that obedience is the thing to do. And now, so good for you, but <laughs> tax collectors and sinners are coming into the, into the kingdom ahead of you, which means because you're that, that, that first guy who pretends to do the right thing, makes the right lip service, but then doesn't do it. So he says, okay, so here's another parable now. There was a master of a house who planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. So he's done all the work. All they have to do is tend it. I mean, it's and if you think about the the garden, the Garden of Eden, then then you see a little bit of, of what that what that looks like. So God did all the work. He he made the garden in the middle of creation and said, "Now you tend this, and then you also then expand this all over the earth. Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth." Well, they wouldn't do that, and so now he's done the same thing. He's planted another garden. It's called the Promised Land. That's a land flowing with milk and honey that's super abundantly blessed and fruitful. So it's reversing the curse on the land in this place. So this is now intended to be God's garden, but they won't do it the right way. They won't keep the Sabbaths. They won't do all those things. So so he's saying, I, I did all the work, and this goes back to Psalm 80. You could see the same idea there. When the season for fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the tenants to get his fruits. And the tenants took his servants and beat one, killed another, and stoned another. Again, he sent other servants, more than the first, and they did the same to them. Finally, he sent his son to them, saying, they'll respect my son. Now, so who are these people? Who, so Jesus is saying this is a parable, but, but it's, it, it's a metaphor. And so that metaphor is saying this is, this is what it looks like from heaven's perspective. And so who are these servants? These servants are the prophets. They're the ones who have come when, when they have failed to do what God's told them to do. Then he has sent his servants, the prophets. And indeed, they beat them, killed them, and stoned them. So now he says he sent his son to them saying, they'll respect my son. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and have his inheritance. Now, the laws of inheritance don't work that way. <laughs> the only thing they could have surmised at this point is, is that, that that was the last ditch, that the man must have died himself, and we'll just take it sort of by eminent domain. We'll do a taking on this property. It's, we'll, we'll, as long as we keep him out. You know, there's a, there's a principle at law now, in, in the United States at least, I don't know about other places, but, but there's a principle at law that you can take another person's property from them. It requires a, a fair bit of effort, 
and, and it requires almost the acquiescence of the other person because they have to know that you're denying them access to their own property over a period of time. And if you've fenced it off and denied them access, let them know they had a, no access to it, and they didn't challenge that, then for whatever stupid reason at law, that can become your property. Now, it doesn't happen often. Eminent domain is when uh, a a municipality, a state, or whatever, a, a governmental agency comes in and takes your property away from you, and they have to make restitution to you for that. So here, th- that's essentially what they're trying to do is to say, well, w- we've denied him access, and we've denied him the fruit of the land, therefore it'll be ours now. So when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? Uh-oh, he's not dead they killed my son and they stoned and beat and killed some of my servants as well. So they took the son and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. And this is obviously saying exactly what's getting ready to happen at the end of this very week in in scripture. I mean, not in reality, that happened a couple of months ago. They said to him, he'll put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruits in their seasons. I mean, those first parables that Jesus told when he told them, you know, the things about like the sower and all that stuff, they didn't understand those parables. Remember that? Nobody understood what he was talking about. Even the disciples didn't. They'd come and ask Jesus. Well, now they get it. At this point, the parable is unmistakable. I mean, it's an easy thing to answer that. What's he going to do to these people? Well, he's going to throw them out and put them to a miserable death. Jesus said to them, have you ever read the scriptures, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone? This was the Lord's doing, and it's marvelous in our eyes. And certainly, it's something Jesus said again and again, and it's something that Peter refers to again and again in that psalm. He says, therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. And the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. How horrible is that? But again, like I said, if you don't think that'll happen to the church, well, then you haven't read the book of the Revelation. You haven't read the letters to the churches because he tells in a couple of circumstances, I will come and take your lampstand away from you. And and here it's always a danger for those who are unfaithful and who are unfruitful. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parables, they perceived he was speaking about them. Well, bully for you. That wasn't difficult to see, was it, fellas? And although they were seeking to arrest him, they feared the crowds because they held him to be a prophet. Well, so he's a prophet. The crowds think he's a prophet. The crowds thought John the Baptist was a prophet. These leaders didn't think that at all. They thought they were just troublemakers. And so they're they're ready to have Jesus arrested, but they know they can't do it in broad daylight because these crowds that acclaimed him as king won't have it. So they got to gin it up somehow, and they got to do that in secret, which is what they end up doing, obviously. In Paul's letter, Paul's struggling here to, to help people understand the role of the law. And, and it's the, one of the things that, that I think we as Christians sometimes can struggle with is a Christian antinomianism. Well, I have the Spirit, therefore I don't need the Old Testament. I don't need the law in any shape, form, or fashion. Well, yes, you do, because you're not just filled with the Holy Spirit. There's other stuff inside you. And you need to know God's Word so that you can approve God's Word, so that you'll know that if the, quote, Spirit in you is telling you to do something, then the only check you have on that is, is that found in God's Word, or is it contrary to God's Word? If it's contrary to God's Word, then it's not God's Spirit speaking to you. And that's what he's saying here. He's talking about the role of the law and the value of the law. He's saying that it's not that it doesn't have any value, 
He said, it doesn't have the same role in our lives anymore since we have the Spirit. He says, did that which is good, the law, then bring death to me? By no means. It wasn't the law. He says, it was sin producing death in me through what is good, the law, in order that sin might be shown to be sin, and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. In other words, if I was just moving along, led by, quote, the Spirit, what happens is the law gets in the way. And the law tells me what sin is. And once I know what sin is, well, that part of me that that connected with that thing really wants it now because I'm not supposed to have it. He says, so through that, it might become sinful beyond measure. In other words, it might be overwhelming to me in the way that I understand sin. He says, well, we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. That's the fall. For I don't understand my own actions. He says, I, I, I don't do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. And I don't know if you've ever had that experience before, but, but you, you, there's just, he says, to be this compulsion in us that, that has got to have that. I can remember one of the first um, times that, that I recall, at least, intentionally disobeying my parents. So we lived on a, a street that was just, it was one block long. It was a very long block. But it was one block long, and so if you came to the top of that street, there was another street that kind of made a semicircle around. And so, so you've got my street, and then you could get to the end of that. You could at the top of the street, you could turn to the right and go around, or you could turn to the left and go around. Well, all three of those streets ultimately intersected into a busy four-lane road. And I, when I got a bicycle, I was I was told that I couldn't ride on that road. I could ride on those three streets, but I couldn't ride on that road. And so I remember doing it. I remember riding around to the, to the bottom of the other, one of the other streets and then cutting off that little distance. It's like three houses, so it's, not, it's a very short distance. So three houses across, and then I came back. Well, I got busted. Somebody saw me and told my parents that I'd done it. But I remember that moment as a six or seven year old kid thinking I got to do it I knew it was wrong and I knew I wasn't supposed to do it but I had to and you know that that's one example of like well about nine million that I could give you but that's the first one that I remember and I remember I, I I didn't want to disobey my parents but there was something about them telling me not to do that that was so appealing that I had to do it now, if I do what I don't want, I agree with the law that it's good. So if I do what I don't want to do, inside me, I've agreed with the law that I don't want to do that. But I did. So now it's no longer I who do it, but the sin that dwells in me, that nature. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what's right, but not the ability to carry it out. For if I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I don't want, it's no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. Does that mean I'm innocent? Because, well, it's sin that did that, Lord. No, that's not what he's saying at all. (laughs) He's saying we're giving in to the flesh. We're living from the flesh. It's no less sin for us to do it. Paul's not talking about this is the way it ought to be for a Christian. He's saying, you've got the Holy Spirit. You ought to be able to overcome all this. It's no longer sin that lives in me. It's the Holy Spirit of God. He said, so I find it to be a law that when I do what is what, when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being. I really do. 
right? I mean, I know these things are good, but I see in my members another law, waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? I mean, you see this contradiction and the paradox in your life, and and I, I can't bear it. Or I can, and I just give in to it. If I approve the law of God, though, then I can't just give in to it. That I have to see the contradiction and the paradox, and it crushes me in my soul. It breaks me because I want to do these things, and then I just find that I can't. I don't have the strength. He says, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. But I have a, a Savior. I have one who will deliver me from the dilemma of wanting, of loving the law, wanting to do the law, and then doing exactly the opposite of that. I have a Savior for that. I have one who will deliver me from that, and that's Jesus Christ. And not only that, he gives me a spirit to overcome the flesh and that law of sin in my members. Thanks be to God.